you know, you could walk in into, for instance, a Chanel store in Philadelphia. You're walking into an EU-owned retailer. All of the distribution can be EU-owned. All of the manufacture can be EU-owned. You can walk into a Zara, and you can walk into an EU-owned retail store. All the distribution can be EU-owned. All of the manufacture can be EU-owned. But you cannot do that in the wine world in the United States of America. When you walk in to buy a bottle of wine, even if it's a bottle of French wine, you are not buying it from a French retail store. There's no such thing as a Dom Perignon store in the United States. <laughs> You're probably walking in to a you're probably walking into a small business. There are more than 47,000. Exactly. There are more than 47,000 independently owned wine stores in the United States. And if you're in a state like Pennsylvania, you're walking into a state-run wine store. So, of which, uh, of which in, there are thousands, literally. Exactly. So, you know, who, who is the tariff hurting there? It's hurting, you know, the state of Pennsylvania or it's hurting small independent businesses. And in both of those cases, we are buying from a U.S. distributor or an importer. So almost there are more than 6,500 U.S. distributors and importers. Almost, and the vast majority of them, again, are small independent businesses. Most of them family-owned businesses in the United States. Yeah, but let's back up a little bit. And I mean, how old and how large an organization is this that you're president of? Well, the U.S. Wine Trade Alliance is very new. It was it was started effectively. To, to fight the tariffs. Most of the wine world has trade advocacy organizations that are either for just retailers or either just distributors or just importers. But there was sort of an understanding that everyone in the wine business was affected this way, and so a number of industry leaders got together and for, wanted to form one overarching organization purpose-built to fight the tariffs on wine. And when was that? This is legitimately just this year. I mean, the tariffs were put in in October. Mm -hmm. Uh, They put in a 25% tariff. Then they threatened to put in up to 100% tariff in December on champagne. They put that on pause for the time being. And so you had a huge groundswell of industry support uh, and it was determined by, you know, quite a number of people that we needed um, an organization built to fight this, uh, fight this battle. I see. And how many members do you have? Well, we have, we have over 6,500 on our Facebook, in our private Facebook group, which is sort of how it started. And then I lots see. of the most important U.S. distributors, importers, restaurants, producers, wine stores such as myself, I think we, we sort of it. had an understanding. We had an understanding that this is we needed to build a new skill. We'd never before had the federal government sort of threaten our industry this way. Mm-hmm. Usually, the laws regarding you know that oversee alcohol or you know wine stores or anything else are all state laws. So generally, when there are trade organizations, you know, they sort of work with state governments. But this is the first time that the federal government really. Um, sort of put a shot across the bow of the wine industry and saying, we can really hurt you guys if, if 
you don't pay attention to us. And so, you know, we had to come up, come up to speed and learn how this stuff, this stuff works. Well, what, what, what was it that the federal government wanted you to do? Well, buy we French wines to, or what was the deal? I mean, essentially, yeah, they want to punish. The, what they're trying to do, I, I suppose, is make it a lot harder for U.S. businesses to buy wines from the EU. The issue is, is that we actually make a lot more money on those wines than they do. For every, for instance, for every billion dollars of EU wine that we buy we make more than $4 billion to U.S. companies. So mm-hmm. every dollar that you stop uh, from importing from the EU, you hurt U.S. businesses, most of whom are really small family-owned businesses, legitimately four times more than you're hurting the EU. It makes it a really ineffective way to convince the Europeans to stop subsidizing yeah. Airbus. <laughs> So I mean, like, what what are the they're, they're starting? I guess they just started public comment on this, exactly right? right. So every effectively every 180 days, there's what's called a comment period. This is required by law, where the U.S. Trade Representative, uh, that's the office that uh, put these tariffs in place, has to open up what they call a comment portal to allow the public to comment on these tariffs. And got it, the, got it. so right now, from now to July 26th, the U.S. Trade Representative has opened the comment portal to comment, uh, seeking comment from the public on these wine tariffs. They're asking, and it's not just the wine tariffs, it's all of the, ter- the tariffs that are affecting the Airbus case. So it's including Airbus itself. So they're asking, should tariffs on some products go up? Should they come down? Should we exchange tariffs from one product to another because, you know, they're not being effective? The goal of the U.S. Trade Representative is to get the EU to stop subsidizing Airbus. Our point is that putting tariffs on imported wine is a terrible way to do that because you do a lot more damage to U.S. businesses than the businesses in the EU – so why does, why does the EU care? And the EU also knows this, and they know the U.S. has to tariff different products. So, of course, they would rather the U.S. tariff products that backfire in America's face and hit a bunch of U.S. businesses. The EU doesn't want them to put tariffs that more effectively target just EU companies. For instance, Airbus and its subsidiaries, and its subsidiaries if you tariff those products, a lot of the damage would, or a significantly higher percentage of the damage would stay limited to the EU. As a matter of fact, even a lot of Boeing has said that even a lot of the, the U.S. airline companies who have bought Airbus products actually buy them through their U.S. subsidiaries at a delivered cost, so it doesn't, wouldn't even necessarily affect the price that the U.S. airlines have to pay for them. All of the damage could potentially be uh, held by Airbus and Airbus's subsidiaries. Uh, so, the fact of the fact of the matter, Ben, is that the the result of the EU government's actions, the American airlines paid less than they otherwise would 
for Airbus airplanes, right? Well, because well, the, go- well, because the government subsidies. I mean, the government subsidy that's involved actually is designed to reduce the price to make the price of an Airbus more attractive than the price of a Boeing. That's true. That that is the that's the sort of underlying premise of the world case. They ruled over the United States, ruling that Airbus was being illegally subsidized. Exactly right. Do you understand this, Robert? It, one thing I do understand is it makes no sense. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, you're you're absolutely right that you know the wine, the wine world has absolutely nothing to do with either Boeing or Airbus, and putting tariffs on wine do a lot more damage to U.S. businesses than they do to the EU, which makes them a terrible way to try to influence the EU to change behavior. So now, now quickly, all of your Ben, for the, for those people who, who don't quite understand wh- where this tariff money goes, can can you, can you quickly explain that? I mean, who gets sure. who gets the money? Well, the, the 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 U.S. Treasury will get the money. The okay. the yeah. people when a product comes in, it's the the U.S. import pays it. So, for instance, on the wine tariffs, a yes. company like Kermit Lynch, right? Yes. They're buying yeah. wine from France, and then when they when it comes here, U.S. control or U.S. customs is going to charge them twenty five extra. That's going to go into the U.S. Treasury. Okay. And then of course they're going to have to you know pass those costs all all along to the distributor and to the right, retailers. Right. And to the consumer. And to the <laughs> consumer, exactly right. And that's right, if they yeah. can even still afford to 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 bring those wines in, and that and that's the that's the other real problem is you know you're making these costs go up in a, a terrible time with this COVID nineteen pandemic, and don't forget how much it hurts the restaurants as well. You know the restaurant industry is really dependent on uh, the robust sales, especially of imported wine. I mean you can imagine if you know if you have a Spanish restaurant, you're certainly not going to be selling more. On your Chardonnay, uh, <laughs> and right as restaurants are trying to sort of get up off the mat, have this burden being thrown at them, you know, where you're scrapping a lot of their most important profit margin items. It's a big problem. Now, yeah, it just sounds like that. I mean, what are the chances of it oh, being oh, resolved oh. favorably to uh, to the wine interests? Well, I mean, it's a great question. The good news is, is you know, consumer outreach really matters. You know, if people write their their uh, house member and their senators, that can really can really help. You know, tell, urge them to tell the USTR, the U.S. Trade Representative, to scrap the tariffs on imported wine. You can ask for tariff relief, which will really help small businesses in a time of crisis, and you can go to the USPR comment portal itself and comment on these tariffs and tell them how ineffective they are and how the tariffs disproportionately harm U.S. businesses and the U.S. trade representatives should carousel the wine tariffs off and replace them with something less harmful to folks here at home. Now, 
let me advance another theory here and see, and see if it makes any sense. Because an, another reason that tariffs were, were designed was, was in order to make foreign goods more expensive than domestic goods. So has anybody advanced the theory that putting a tariff on wines from France will make wines from California priced more attractively? You know, it's a really good question. I mean, that's one, that's one of the theories advanced for, for why there are tariffs in the first place. Yes. Well, there are, there are a series of tariffs called protectionary tariffs, essentially, which do exactly that. Right. Uh, okay. But it's not the case in these products. And interestingly, just about everybody in the U.S. domestic wine world is totally against these tariffs for several reasons. First of all, the, the wines aren't what they call fungible. They're not really exchangeable. You know, if you're, if you're in love with uh, Burgundy from France, you aren't necessarily going to be substituting that with something from California. Uh, moreover, most U.S. domestic producers are small producers. Something like 80% of U.S. wine growers are small producers. It means they don't have a famous name necessarily, and they require distribution for access to market. And right. they, so they, they need a distributor. They need a U.S. wine distributor to, to basically to invest in them. Because, yes. you know, they're not, most producers are small, and they need a distributor that can say, we love your wines. We're going to take a risk on you. We're going to pay you for them. We're going to train all our staff on them, even though they've never heard of you before. And we're going to start taking your wines to all the restaurants and all right. the retailers and all the big markets. Well, guess Got what? It. Those same distributors are the ones that are being killed by these tariffs. And the right. only way distributors have enough cash to be able to make the investments in small U.S. producers is if yeah. they have that robust sale of imported wine. That's how they make that's how they make their bread and butter. Right. And domestic producers know that. They know that they are a lot more healthy when US distributors are in a really healthy position and they're able to go out and take a chance. Right. And these tariffs are killing the distributors, which means they don't have the money or the capital or the resources to go right. out and invest in domestic in US domestic producers. What, what do you think? Is, is all this protesting going to do any good? It absolutely makes a huge difference, without any doubt. Okay. Uh, I, I, for instance, I would tell you, you know, Airbus itself only has 15% tariffs. Wine has 25%. It's because yes. a lot, it's because Airbus had a lot of really strong interests in Congress. So that means right. everybody else has to, has to tell Congress, hey, Right now, you're doing more damage to U.S. companies than you are to doing to EU companies through these right. wine tariffs, and you need to you need to cut it out. You got to scrap it. It doesn't make any sense to tariff a product that does a lot more damage to U.S. companies than it does to companies in the EU. Now, is is, is this at all impacted by the fact that our leader doesn't drink alcohol? <laughs> It's a great question. I, you know, I can't answer that. Uh, it, it, it is a good question. He doesn't drink wine at all. That's right. He doesn't drink anything at all. Yeah, right. <laughs> his, his brother, his brother drank the family's share. 
Yeah, I guess so. uh, it, it, I can't speak to it. <laughs> yeah. Apparently he did. Apparently he did. And he overindulged quite a lot, and as a result, he's in his grave where his brother is not. Right. Yeah. but true that is. Right, right. Yeah. So, so we, we wish you a very successful campaign in writing a congressman, in writing to this person who is responsible for the administration of the tariffs. We, we just want well, anything that will help the price of wine to go down. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I really appreciate and it. And is there a direct, can you do like a direct connection to the first place that somebody who wants to protest this tariff goes to what to where well the first thing i would say is go to our website uswinetradealliance.org and you can find all of the information and how to write your congressperson and how to contact the office of the u.s trade representative and the appropriate place to comment on this specific issue okay that sounds good well, Ben, I mean, I, I, every day there's something new to, to protest. I don't, know. I don't know what's coming down the pike next, you know. But, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a strange time. Uh, it, it is strange indeed. You know, I just, uh, between this and, and the um, and Americans aren't going to be allowed to go to any of the EU countries, and, you know, we cover a lot of these food events globally, and we're not going to be able to do that, and, you know, it's just like, it's so intrusive into our our ordinary lives, you know. Absolutely right. Here's a, here's a thought to close with, and it's the first line of a book called The Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens, who, who was not protesting tariffs. <laughs> he, he, he wrote this. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. The worst of times. That that is, that is where we are, Ben. We we wish you all the best. We wish you a very successful campaign in in helping us to make sure that we get the beverages we deserve at a price we can afford. Well, thanks very much. I appreciate the time and have yeah, a forever allowed back in New York. We'll come to visit you. Wine bar. Please do. Please Your do. Shop. Like a wine merchants in Lower Manhattan. Come see us. Okay. Got it. You have, you have, a, you have a hot tip for our, for our listeners to indulge in just before you leave the air? Uh, for a, a great wine producer or... A, 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 great, a, great, a great wine that's a bargain or whatever. One, one that you think is flying off your shelves right now. One of my favorites right now is a little white burgundy producer called Dury Gentil, and they make a Rui that's fabulous, and the head of Domaine Loire, uh, Gilles, told me it was also one of his very favorite producers. Uh, I won't spell it for you. D-U-R-E-I-L, maybe, then Gentil, J-A-N-T-H-I-A-L, Dury Gentil, a Rui, fabulous little white burgundy. Okay, well, okay, thank, white thank, you, thank you for that information. Let's, let's hope the state store has some in stock, and we can get some before everybody else does. Absolutely. <laughs> in, thank in, you, Ben. In the meantime, thank you. Bo- bottoms up, as they say. <laughs> Absolutely. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net.
welcome back. We were so happy to hear our next guest's voice on the phone when she recorded the interview. Um, Matt Parrish is a Kiwi, and boy, he's come a long way from New Zealand to California, where he's the winemaker and, the, and a really good one at Lula Cellars. Uh, well, he has some spectacular wines, so and he's going to talk to us about that. This is this is only the second vintage at this winery in the Anderson Valley in Northern California. So here's Matt. Yes, well, I'm, I'm meeting somebody from New Zealand here uh, who's actually in the States now working. Um, he's the new winemaker for Lula. Um, and we're, we're talking to Matt Parrish. And uh, Matt, are you, you're a new, the new winemaker there, are you? That's right. Well, well, hi, Peter and Anne, and uh, a big uh, hello to your audience, and thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, so I've been the winemaker for Lula Sellers since 2017. Uh, Lula okay. Sellers started about 10 years ago. So but for the last uh, three vintages going into the fourth now, yeah, I've been heading up the winemaking for them. Now, you're not your typical... Pinot Noir winemaker, though, because you're from a part of the world that is getting a reputation for Pinot Noir, but certainly it existed with a much broader reputation centuries and centuries and centuries ago. Yeah, that's that's right. tell Tell us the history of this grape, if you would. Uh, well, I mean, um, uh, so I mean, obviously, uh, Pinot Noir sort of finds its home in Burgundy, France, uh, and that's um, uh, where it's really come to fame. Um, you know, obviously, it's used in Champagne, and it's now growing all around the world. So, you know, I've, uh, I left New Zealand about 20 years ago to spend some time uh, in Australia, and then I've spent the last 15 years in in California, but uh, my parents actually grow Pinot Noir and Chardonnay in Waipara, New Zealand. So my sister wow. makes the wine, my dad grows the grapes. So, yeah, so even though the history for Pinot is, you know, centuries old, as you say, Peter, um, you know, for, for in my short lifetime, it's um, it's been a, a large part of what I've done and what I do. So, yeah, so equally excited, and, and that was the reason for choosing Anderson Valley was because... You know, it's really one of the best places uh, in the world to grow Pinot Noir. Now, how did how did you get picked? I mean, the 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 blurb all about you says this this man is a highly celebrated, world-renowned Pinot Noir winemaker, but that that and New Zealand don't necessarily synchronise. Yeah, well, I mean, um, so New Zealand is starting to, as you know, get a lot of accolades around Pinot Noir. Um, but really, the the background here is that when I came to the US, I started working for some very large wine companies. So uh, I worked for Constellation Brands. I worked for Treasury Wine Estate. So that, that, that I've got uh, brands like uh, Robert Mondavi, Behringer, and, and, sure, and so sure. forth. Uh, Etude, which is a pretty well-known Pinot Noir brand in California as part of the, the Treasury Wine Estates portfolio. So, 
Um, but the thing was is that I ended up um, uh, probably more in, call it, the oversight and the, the management of production. And about four years ago, um, I decided that I really wanted to get back to hands-on winemaking. And that was really the, the reason for moving to, to Lula Cellars. Okay, got it. Now, Lula Cellars itself ex- existed already, but, but yeah. what, what, was it, what, was it, what was its history like? Yeah, so Lula Cellars was set up about 10 years ago by a group of you know, wine professionals and wine enthusiasts. Um, and the, the founding winemaker, Jeff uh, Hansen, who unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago, uh, was really the a big driver in that, and so um, so yeah, it was nicely established. But when Jeff sort of fell into ill health, that's where I kind of stepped in to uh, keep the project going and 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 sort of uh, and keep the wines and in, in a manner that that he would like. So that was really the transition, and that's been the history. The the it's a very small winery. It's in what they call the deep end of Anderson Valley, which is closer to the coast. Um, so for the, the the listeners who don't know where Anderson Valley is, it's about two and a half hours north of San Francisco. Uh, it's a right. beautiful part of California um, where you've got the influence of the coast, you've got mountains, you've got ranges, you've got uh, a lot of forests around there. And um, uh, Lula Cellars is based on a 20-acre property. Um, yeah, As I said, towards the coast, about 15 which have planted to about seven different clones of Pinot Noir, all stemming from those sort of that Burgundy background. Cool. Uh, there's, there's obviously brands or wineries that are, are located only in Anderson Valley, and that's what they focus on. But there's a lots of other brands like Costa Brown and, and um, William Salem that basically do different bottlings from vineyards in Anderson Valley. So, uh, yeah, so it's a nice mix of uh, local wineries. And, uh, and wineries that are based in sort of Sonoma or even Napa and elsewhere that, that want to do a bottling from Anderson Valley. I, I like the description of Rescue Block, which was discovered <laughs> under, under an overgrowth of blackberries, for heaven's sake. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So when they purchased the vineyard, they, they found under, under a bunch of blackberries that there were some vines there. And we managed to resurrect them or rescue them. And, um, and, and the great thing about that block is, is we do a special bottling, uh, which is, you know, a, a very small bottling because there's only a thousand vines. Uh, but it also, it's the oldest block on the property. We think it's just over 10 years old. So it gives us a really good indication of where we see the future in okay, terms of it, sort of the power of okay. the structure. Yeah. Sweetheart. Yes. Help, help me out here. Who, who, who is the doctor? Who was really a winemaker in in Tassie? You remember we had lunch with him. Where and where? He he, he was a, he was an Australian winemaker, but he he had a doctorate in enology, not a doctorate in medicine. Oh, right. Okay. And I can't I remember. I, I can't remember his name. It's infuriating. The, the one who, who lost his vineyard in divorce. That's the one. Yeah. Yeah, I can't remember his name. I remember he lost remember he lost his vineyard in a divorce. But, <laughs> um, yeah, he he was the first one to get an analogy degree um, from the University of Sydney, wasn't it? He, he was the first one to get a doctorate. 
Doctor, yeah. And, 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 and he built his reputation as a winemaker by telling the rest of the world that you could grow grapes in Tasmania when people said you couldn't. It was Jordan or something like that, Dr. Jordan, but it wasn't who it was. I'll have to look it up. It's, it's infuriating me that I can't remember. Okay, yeah, I mean, I've been to Tasmania. I've done a little bit of work in Tasmania. It's, a, yeah, it's one of those cool climate places that, that does right. pin over as well, that's sparkling, yeah. So uh, I think I know who you're talking about. I, I haven't... Um, if I think of the name, I'll mention it to you, Peter, to help you out. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully, you, hopefully you can remember it as well. Now, now yeah. the interesting thing about, this, about these wines, there's a whole series of them I'm looking here, and every, every, every one of them is rated 90-something points and is a seller selection from wine enthusiast. Yep. Yeah. That must, must be pretty good wines, yeah, no, we've been really, look, we've been working really hard. It all starts in the vineyard, so we've obviously been spending a lot of time in the, in the vineyard. Uh, people can check out uh, photos of our vineyard. We've even got a live camera uh, if they go to lulacellars.com. And, um, yeah, so we started in the vineyard. We're spending a lot of time and energy and effort and obviously money, which is uh, a big part of the wine business. Yeah, and, right. um, and then, you know, we've we've... We've uh, actually moved into a new winemaking facility that really um, uh, is a lot gentler on the Pinot Noir than you know um, uh, than we had the opportunity previously. We've got obviously like uh, a lot of producers some very nice barrels, some very expensive barrels, and um, you know the intention is is like we want to pr- uh, produce. Uh, some very rich pinots, but we want to retain that sort of delicacy and that 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 lovely texture that you get with pinot as well. So, and that that's sort of a fine balance, you know, getting to that point. But yeah, so um, I'm thrilled to say, yeah, in the last couple of years, we've sort of had uh, call it mid 90s ratings for a number of our wines um, from Enthusiast and uh, Lula Vineyard, um, which is a, a bottling just from the Lula Vineyard. Uh, just got a 98 um, and a double mm. gold, sort of best of class at the Sunset International Wine Competition. So, you know, those are those are all great. I mean, obviously, the most important thing is is are, the, are our customers happy and are people loving our wines because other people buying it. But it's always great to get that endorsement, and for a small producer like us that are making a couple of thousand cases, um, it's um, yeah, it's really important. You know, it helps with getting the message out and, and things like that. But people are starting to take notice, which is fantastic. No, where does the name come from? <laughs> right. So the name is the the name is the um, for Jeff Hansen, who I said was the founding winemaker. That was his maternal uh, grandmother's name. That's where okay. that comes from. I, mean, I had I figured it was some kind of family reference. Right. Yeah, it yeah, was right. a family reference. Yeah, and um, and we even had a, a had a dog up until last year, um, who you know that basically shared some uh, a similar name. So yeah, so it's all it's all part and parcel of uh, you know um, the history of the, the family, the people involved in the project. So I'm going to ask a really dumb question, and then please please answer it thoughtfully, even though it's a dumb question. 
everybody who talks about Pina talks about clones with, yeah. with names and numbers. Now, yeah. I don't, I don't recall the emphasis on names and numbers being nearly so much in Graveside Cabernet Sauvignon. Am, am I wrong, or am I just not listening in the right place? Yeah, it's, no, it's a really that's a it's a great question, but. Uh, so um, I, I think so. We definitely, as winemakers, look at the clones and the rootstock. So the clones being the the, the, the different tastes of each variety, similar to roses or April, you know, or fruit fruiting trees or things like that. Right. Um, and, and also the rootstock, which is basically you know what the the, the clone is grafted onto. Um, uh, you know, so I'm looking at some Cabernet vineyards at the moment, and I'm definitely looking at the clones. But I think when it comes to Pinot Noir, the reason that it's talked about so much is that Pinot Noir is probably the most expressive variety based on where it's grown, the clones, um, the winemaking, and all of those things. And that's kind of why it becomes a bit of a holy grail for winemakers. But but that's why um, you often see reference in, you know, marketing materials or communications around a Pinot Noir as the different clones. Um, and so you've got clones that um, are taken from famous vineyards in Burgundy, uh, and then you've got clones that were developed in California or in other places around the world that all have different attributes. So very basically, one attribute might be they have more colour, or they might have more aromatics, or they might have more... Uh, astringency or tannin um, and so with Lula uh, the, the beauty is is that we've got seven different clones so when it comes to blending for me I can really marry a, a number of profiles together to get the outcome so now we, now we have we have an old an old friend who I think I think may not be making wine anymore but his name is Gary Eberly Mm-hmm. And, and, and he he pioneered a clone called the suitcase clone. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The suitcase clone being being Shiraz imported into California and in a suitcase in the trunk of a vehicle of some kind. Yes. Yeah. Particularly 70s, 80s, there are a number of suitcase clones that came in. Obviously, you know, there's uh, restrictions around that because, you know, when you're bringing in planting material. But, yeah, some of the very good clones, um, you know, and some of the old, well-known vineyards uh, are based on those clones. Hey, Peter, it's Dr. Yes. Andrew Dr. Andrew Perry. Perry, Perry. That's it. I told you, yeah. You had me stumbled there for a second. Oh, yeah, I was worried about that too. <laughs> yeah, that's the Tasmanian doctor who, yeah, winemaker. You yeah, very, him. very well known. Yep. Yeah, we 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 had we had lunch with him one day, and uh, he 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 had disposed he had disposed of Elk Cove, which which was his original vineyard. See, there you mm-hmm. go. I remember it now. And he 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 developed a new name and a new brand, if you like, a new style, similar in many respects to the work that you describe that you've been doing in California. And he said, yeah. "This is this is my retirement fund." Right. Yeah. So he developed um, in the 1970s, which was very. He, he he did Piper's Brook. Yeah. So that's it, Piper's yeah. Brook. 
I'm yeah, not getting it mixed up. Elk, elk. It. I'm putting yeah. elk over in, in Australia, and it's really in Oregon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but we, no we, we did it well between the two of us anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm wondering um, a number of things, like are people in your area of California concerned about climate change? Yeah, I mean, definitely. I think you've kind of got your head in the sand if you're not. Um, but, um, you know, that, that's one of the beauties of uh, Anderson Valley is that we're still very close to the coast, running miles from the coast as the crow flies. So, you know, a lot of the climate is really moderated by that coastal influence, the fog and so forth. Um, but, that, but absolutely, I mean, um, a lot of companies are looking at that and looking at how they... Uh, potentially adapt or they've already adapted their strategy around grape planting, sourcing and all the rest of it. But, uh, but yeah, pen and wine. And making wine in England. No, that's yeah. <laughs> making champagne in England. Amazing. Yeah, no, well, no, no, no. the English industry's taken off, you know. So I've got a good friend of mine who's got a, uh, a vineyard and makes sparkling wine in England now. So, you know, um, so, that's, so it's definitely all happening, you know. Where, where is, is he at Camelford or where, where is he? Where is he at? He's in Kent. Yep. Kent. Okay. Yep. Yep. Simpsons Wine Estates. Yep. Oh, okay. All right. All right. Well, yep. The yep. other thing is we've got to get past this. Um, all this stuff that's happening with tariffs and, I mean, the trade wars and I mean, it's really gotten awful, hasn't it? I'm yeah, it makes it a real challenge. Yep. At a I'm pretty, rattling, pretty uh, confusing I'm time all around. I'm rattling my brain here, Matt. Did, did you mm-hmm. did you send did you send us a Pinot? I mean, I'm yeah. Gonna, uh, <laughs> There's a I list of the wines on the back of that pile of papers you have, rather. Yeah. Well, there, no, so, there was there was a rosé. There was a rosé. Yeah, yeah. I sent you a rosé of Pinot. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I sent you four wines, but the first one was a rosé of Pinot, which has got a really cool story. It comes off a 1976 planting of the Beaujolais clones, so speaking about Pinot clones. You know, we, it, I enjoyed it, that. That is not a wine I would ordinarily have liked. Right, right. Yeah. I don't and know why. And to sort of comment before, it was sort of like I wanted to make a rosé that kind of looked like a... Uh, a, a brute rosé without the bubbles, you know, it had that kind of lovely sort of acidity and freshness and and all the rest. So uh-huh. um, I served yeah. it to Miss Miss Anne without telling her that's what I was going to pour, and yeah. knowing knowing she might rebel, but nevertheless her palate needed to be extended to taste <laughs> what, what a really nice California rosé can, can how it can behave. Right, yeah. It's nice no. and refreshing. It's a perfect summer wine, yep. No, so yep. you're still excited, are you, Matt, about what's going on? And With, with uh, you mean the coronavirus? Or no, no. <laughs> you're right, we're all excited about the coronavirus. I'm talking about uh, the, the California wine industry and Lula. Yeah, no, I, I am. You know, it's... Um, yeah, I'm really fortunate because, uh, you know, with Lula, I get to make a, a whole range of wines. So I talked about the rosé. 
Uh, we do probably five or six different pinots from Anderson Valley and also from an area called Compchi. I sent you one of the Compchi wines. But then I also do some really interesting wines, like I do a Mendocino Ridge Zinfandel, so that's above 1,200 feet, so you get quite a different sort of Zinfandel style for California with more acidity, it's darker, it's richer, it's more kind of European in style. Uh, I do a, a, a Cabernet from an Appalachian uh, called uh, Pine Mountain Cloverdale Peak. It's off a beautiful vineyard, uh, volcanic uh, red dirt um, right above Cloverdale, if people know that area. Um, yeah, so that, that's the really cool thing. And then, you know, California is so diverse. You know, through other activities, I'm, I'm making wine up in the El Dorado foothills or Napa or, you know, for, for a winemaker, it's really exciting, you know. So, will will you make a sparkler? Do you think? Yeah, a couple of people have asked me that. I mean, and Anderson now sure. has a history of making some great sparkling. Actually, I started my career thinking I was going to be a sparkling winemaker, and I worked for Remy Martin in um, in Australia in in Victoria, Central Victoria, for a, a little bit of time. Um, but uh, it just kind of never happened. I was looking to travel, and I uh, it was easier to find non-sparkling jobs in France and Italy and places like that when I was traveling so I kind of ended up more on the table but I've been involved in sparkling but but uh, not sort of specialized in sparkling so to speak but it's not to say that Luther won't make one yeah you, you, you should you should get you should get to know Joy Sterling oh mm-hmm. yeah she's wonderful I don't know her Spaniards Joy oh, she's, she's in Green Valley yeah. Right, yeah. right, right, right. Her parents are wonderful they, too. They, they made ten cuvées, and we 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 had lunch with the founders of the vineyard, Barry and Audrey Sterling. Right. And we sam- we sampled all ten. Right, right. Well, the thing oh, about okay. sparkling is, is that you know the first time you you have a lovely bottle of sparkling wine with a group of people. And the way that a sparkling wine just kind of picks up the party and the atmosphere, and I mean that's that's magic. So I mean, there's, there's, that was definitely a, a captivating moment for me at the start, and why I thought I would sort of spend more time making sparkling. But you know, uh, still plenty of years to go, so uh, that could be the next thing. You know. Well, I mean, you, you seem to be in a good position. And they're having a lot of fun and making good wines, and we certainly enjoyed them. So, no, so, so listen, listen up, listen up, listeners. Lula, L-U-L-U is the name of the vine. L-U-L-A, Lula. Lula. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And, it's, and it's all Pinot Noir. No, whatever Lula wants, Lula gets. Yeah, it's but... L-U-L-A and lulasellers.com and um, yeah, we, everything's from Mendocino of which, you know, Anderson Valley sits in the Mendocino OVA. Um, so yeah, so yeah, definitely check us out. We're, um, uh, we're, we're a cool, small winery. Well, okay. thank you so much for sharing your delicious elixir of wine with Anne and Peter. We enjoyed all four bottles enormously. And uh, we thank you so much for sh- sharing your thoughts and your information in this discussion. It's been a whole lot of fun. And uh, who knows, maybe you'll f- 
make it back to New Zealand one day, maybe you won't. Huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You never know. Who knows? Huh? It's the best place to be. It looks like. But um, I know. Anyway, yeah, it has to have a, having a, a, another end of God to your audience and um, yeah, and stay safe, take care, and uh, yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Matt Parrish. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. And our last interview today, we're going to be stepping back a little bit from the... uh, uh, alcoholic beverages. Oh, there's a little trace of alcohol. Um, about, talking, a, about a cent and a half. Yeah, that's a bit. Um, it's fermented. Fermented. Yeah. Fermented. And we're going to talk to Chris McCoy, who has devised this wonderful substance in a company called Kombucha Town. And Peter's totally hooked on, on this. Um, it. it it comes in flavors. He has a whole backstory to it, um, and and he's a great guy to talk to. So listen to Chris McCoy from Kombucha Town. Well, we're entering a new world here, the Kombucha world, with Chris McCoy and his uh, company, and um, which is Kombucha Town. Um, and now he's. Uh, heard, Chris, before we started recording, how excited Peter is because he's <laughs> new to kombucha world, <laughs> where I guess I've been around it for a long time. Uh, I, your product, how the, by the way, though, however, is particularly good, kombucha. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, I appreciate that. Yeah, well, anyhow, um, the, the company, let's, let's start with why the kombucha town as a name, and um, how did it come about? I mean, tell us the backstory for how you started your company and what you hope okay. to do, because you're also involved with all kinds of other things besides just a healthful beverage. Um, you're involved yeah. with ecology. and so- Well, start at the beginning. How did you end up doing this? So I first learned about kombucha in 2007 when I was going to Western Washington University up in Bellingham, Washington, and... I was studying environmental studies and economics at the time and very interested in sustainability and kind of regenerative business practices and things like that. I was also drinking a lot of coffee and energy drinks. It was actually sober, Sobe Energy at the time, um, which I have since learned is really bad for you. Um, and so I had this roommate who was also named Chris, and uh, he had long dreadlocks and didn't wear shoes very much. <laughs> and he had this weird thing growing in his in his uh, in the pantry, so how funny! I was, you know, <laughs> curious about it and learned and tried it, and it was kind of this vinegary. It's like his is very strong, so it's like a very kind of like vinegar sort of feel to it. Um, but it made me feel great, and so you know, after experiencing it that way, you know, eventually I kind of started. I joked that I was drinking enough of his that he was like, "Dude, you got to make your own." So he taught me how to do it, um, and then so I started brewing in college, and then after about three. Three years of home brewing. Um, you know, I graduated from college, and it was 2010, and kind of looking for a different job um, and exploring other things like kind of sport, like potentially getting more into like uh, like professional sports or music or just 
grad school, all these different options. And really what happened is people just started getting more and more interested in my products and what I had been brewing because I'd been sharing more with other people when they wanted to start to buy it. And so it kind of just snowballed from there uh, to where, you know, I started brewing one-gallon batches and I started to do five and then I I sold it to a couple of local uh, restaurants to put in their specialty Uh cocktails and then went to the farmer's market. And, yeah, so one thing I did, one thing that was – I guess uh, very learned about it was when I was in college and learning about economics, learning about emerging industries, and I started seeing these products, kombucha products, on the shelf. And then there was one brand, and then there was two brands, and you'd see it in more stores. And so to me, I was like, oh, this looks like an emerging industry, something that would probably be a good time to get into. And so uh, I originally founded the company in 2011, and uh, since have had several different innovations through through the industry. We were the first com- live kombucha in a can, so I did that very much for the environmental reasoning behind the can. It's much more recyclable than plastic or glass, which most of the industry and most beverages are in. Uh, it's also, they're manufactured in the United States. It was an, originally an American innovation. And so, and they're just much, much more efficient from a shipping and packing standpoint, much safer and convenient to take out into nature with you. And so my goal was to make more of a lifestyle brand where somebody can take a healthy beverage with them wherever they go uh, when the rest of the industry was really around sort of like high-end health wellness specialty where people were getting bottles and sipping them kind of like a medicine regardless of the flavor. So, <laughs> it's uh, true. Which, that's, you know, it's, that's, back yeah. in the day, it was kind of viewed as a medicine. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. But now um, it's like how can we replace soda? And energy yeah. is something. Oh, I please! I never, I never liked to. Well, now, um, hold, yeah. hold on, hold on a minute. Let, let's let's check 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 out this for our listeners. What 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 uh, is exactly. kombucha? I mean, and exactly. knows what it is. I never even heard of it. Yeah. Well, before. explain what it is and the process and what you mean by brewing it. Okay. Yeah. So kombucha is a fermented tea. And so it's similar to beer in that it uses yeast and bacteria to ferment, to break down the sugars that you essentially brew a sweet tea. Uh, we use black, a variety of teas, actually, but black and green are the most common. Um, we use those and some others. And uh, so then you add sugars. So you can have any sugar source. We use all organic fair trade sugar just because that's part of our organic certification and just what, the way we like to source products. Some people use honey. Um, you can do a lot of different things to, to sort of sweeten it, and then you have to add the culture. So the culture is called a SCOBY, or a mother is kind of the nickname mm-hmm. for it, and that's a symbiotic colony of bacteria and yeast. And so it actually has a form. It's called a zooglial mat. So it, has, it looks like a little pancake, essentially, that you put into your sweet tea. It has all these living organisms in it, and then they start to consume the sugar. And the cool thing about that is then they turn the sugar into really awesome amino acids, antioxidants, a little bit of alcohol, which is something that you need to manage because a raw, a raw kombucha can be about 1% to 1.5% alcohol. Yeah, that's what that, that whole issue with the pregnant lady was about, by the way. Some people yeah, kind ahead. of think about it, you know, from a regulation standpoint, half a percent is the, is the, is the max for a non-alcoholic beverage. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something that, is you know every every manufacturer has different ways to 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 make sure that they stay within spec and kind of deal with that. One of the nice things is is that there's been 
you know, of my almost decade in the industry, I've never had anybody have an issue with, like, getting intoxicated or getting sick from a kombucha product. So it's not like you're going to drink a bunch and get drunk and make bad decisions, but there is enough that, you know, from a regulatory standpoint. You're drunk on kombucha. I think Lindsay Lohan got a DUI back in, like, 2010, and she blamed it on kombucha. Now, she was probably oh, that's drinking right. I forgot about that. than just kombucha. But that was like the big stick, and that's actually oh, what I made the government crack down on the kombucha industry and regulate it as either an alcoholic or a non-alcoholic. So there's actually two different kinds of kombuchas. There's the alcoholic ones that are sold like beer, and then there's non-alcoholic, which are sold like soft drinks. So that's kind of a quick breakdown of like the brewing process and a couple of the different styles that there are out in the industry uh, and it's it's been really cool how it's diversifying and growing. There's different methods. Some people age them in things like oak barrels, so assimilating other fermentation technology to really give it cool, unique flavors um, and characteristics. So it's been pretty awesome watching all these different brands and this kind of basic thing that in really in the 90s was a sort of a do-it-yourself fad um, of brewing kombucha at home. Yeah. Uh, into this really blossoming commercial industry that's very diverse. So that's been kind of cool well, to no, be a part of and well, experience. No, hold hold and on, let me, let me take it in a slightly different, different direction. Because okay. there, 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 are two, there are two things about your kombucha that are kind of wacky ass. One is all the writing <laughs> on the cans, mm-hmm. which, which, which tell a variety of different stories, most of which I don't understand. <laughs> Fair enough. And then, and, and then there are all the flavors. Yep. And uh, the uh, I, I was first attracted to it, I guess, with the with what tastes like ginger beer. Oh yes. Which the which ginger which, is you, our which you describe as one flavor. That's one of, that's one of your original flavors. It was yeah. Outside of just a raw tea kombucha, that was our first flavor. And ginger's been a very successful flavor across functional beverages and definitely kombucha. Um, it's just a natural digestive aid and a really nice... Yeah, you know, I, I was feeling kind of sick to my stomach with the heat, and so I popped open the ginger yesterday and drank the whole thing. There you that go. The first That's I was perfect. allowed to have. <laughs> Peter's really commandeered the whole delivery. <laughs> I have. Yeah, that, I uh, have indeed. There's only one can left. Mm-hmm. There we go. Well, after the call, please, if you need more, let me know. We'll send you some more. Consider it requested. All right. Cool. So, so move us along here. Um, I, I think that the, the market has changed somewhat um, from the, the early origins of the, the – um, kombucha culture to where it is now like with your products how do you read that so i think that there's been you know there's this early early entry kind of market growth phase of any new trend fad product category industry and so i think that we're really starting to see the industry get into a more mature place where more and more people have experienced or heard of kombucha i personally don't believe that it's fully mainstream yet. I think that there's a lot, you know, on the coast, it's pretty popular, but I think like oh, in the yeah. Midwest, more in the South, there's definitely areas of America where people are starting to really look for 
healthier beverage options than haven't even heard of kombucha at all. Or maybe they did, they tried it, they didn't like it because they got one of those medicine-y bottles that had the floaters in it that looked like snot. <laughs> so <laughs> that, that's been something that I think has kind of plateaued the original kind of sort of medicine, holistic, very high-end specialty kombucha industry, which has been most of it up until this point. And now what we're seeing in the last few years is a much more lifestyle mainstream oriented push from both flavor profiles and branding as well as nutrition and ingredients to get into and take more market share from things like soda, energy drinks, other functional beverages. Um, you know, for me personally, it's all about creating options that people can have that will both be very refreshing but delicious to them without being packed full of artificial sweeteners or really sugar at all or any of the coloring agents or weird chemical additives that are in most beverages on the market still. So I think it's entering this sort of second wave of all the early entry, all, all the real early adopters are already drinking kombucha. They have for a long time. And now there's sort of this second wave. And there's something that you see, it's something that you've seen in several different beverage industries that have been, had long-term success. And, you know, coffee's had several different phases of emergence from a handful of small, big brands to start, like Starbucks and Pete's. And then, like, 10 years later, there's a whole insurgence of a whole other group of, of beverages that are more regional, more local, uh, have new varietals and differentiating factors, use unique ingredients. And so I think that kombucha is kind of entering that second phase where, you know, some of the first some, basically, the the first enters have kind of expressed as much as they can get out of the market, um, and a lot of those brands that saw sort of skyrocketed growth for the first five or six years have plateaued now. Um, some of them have gotten big capital investments from Coke and Pepsi and other big beverage oh, companies, yeah. and those ones, those ones keep growing, obviously, because they're throwing tons of money at advertising and things like that so we've never had that and so we've had to grow very organically um and actually to your point earlier about kind of like the story on the can and the marketing of that um that's something that we've learned is very you know initially it was really just me and my friend who was an artist and a designer when i started the company who did those designs and now we've actually got some new designs that are a lot cleaner a lot less sort of cluttered and we're just trying to really distill our message and what parts of the brand are core so that we can be on the shelf and look clean, um, but still have a lot of character. Cause I think that the initial, you know, what our branding has been has a ton of character, but is a little confusing. Um, and so that's, that's good feedback that we've used to continue to improve our products. And uh, yeah, hopefully the market starts to see it and really like it. And, and we've got a new product line called Live Seltzer, which is going to be a probiotic seltzer water, the first one on the market. So that's oh, kind of great. differentiating a little bit beyond just kombucha as its own beverage and using it to help add value to other categories. So that's, to me, I'm an innovator. So that's what yeah, I like yeah, to do. Yeah. That's what I'm best at. Um, the marketing and the branding and the sales have always been something that we've, like, struggled at a little more than some of the other brands that have gotten huge, you know, investments and strategic partnerships and whatnot. But I believe now we're positioned better than ever to be able to attract that kind of partnership. And we've got products that I'd say 90% of people, if not more, really love and see as a 
clear improvement to the existing status quo of the industry. So yeah, they beat those uh, doors. I mean, really. Oh, I, think it's, <laughs> I think I think it's fabulous. I'm, I, I mean, I'm 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 down to rationing. <laughs> You're down to rationing. <laughs> Well, you know, the, the and, thing, and, Chris... And, and, hold on a minute. And, 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 uh, when, when I'm getting close to the end, uh, I, have, I have to add sparkling mineral water. That's perfect. <laughs> now you have a live seltzer. That's what we've done. See, this seltzer idea is great. Um, I mean, you really understand your products, Chris. I mean, I think that... And your market, I really think that's great. So I'm impressed with the compote kombucha's town yeah well thank kombucha you town. the funny thing the, the name so when i was brewing when i first got started i was listening to uh, like funk music and yeah. the song funky town came on oh, right. while i was brewing and i was like it's like won't you take me to i was like kombucha town <laughs> that's, that's the name it's kombucha town and then the lyrics are the like name. to the place where the energy is right like everybody's happy and having a good time i was like that is exactly what i want my products to embody so that's what funky town was originally what inspired the name and hopefully someday we can do a fun sort of uh riff on it for you know advertising purposes and things like that cuz is I just think it was a good it was a good fit, and I think that kombucha is kind of a funky thing that, you know, hopefully um, with brands like mine and, and others can become a mainstream uh, concept and something that people consume all the time because it will really help with a lot of the underlying health issues our, our country and the world are having with, okay. you know, diabetes so, and obesity so not, and heart disease. Not, not only like tastes that, good, so. not, not only lifts you up, it's healthy too. My God. Yeah, Exactly. And everybody and, can have better immunity, and we cannot have to worry about. You, you have also um, you you have your eye on community support and community involvement, which is very Pacific Northwest, isn't it? Definitely, yeah. We yeah. engage and donate with you know to dozens of local nonprofit organizations, arts and music and recreation, and that's that's honestly my favorite part is to you know spread the wealth and send healthy products out to people to try and to consume while they're doing something that they really believe in. So, you know, that kind of inspiration and involvement in the community is what I think that my, my personal like purpose very much has been around, you know, community develop and really promoting diversity in communities. And the best way to do that is if people feel good and are healthy. Um, so they can, they can express that and really enjoy their lives. So, you know, that's kind of going a, a layer deeper than just the, you know, the trend of kombucha. But well, well, yeah. we're we've signed up for support, supporting your brand there. So, um, how about giving our listeners a, a website to check out? Great, yeah. So we're you can just go to kombuchatown.com. We're on all the different various social media channels as well. If you're on those, Facebook and Instagram, the website's got the most information. Uh, we're actually running a. Uh, crowdfunding campaign in August as well. So if people are interested in the brand, it would be a great way for them to really get an idea of, you know, learning about the team and the product and what our sort of strategic plan to grow is and and get involved. So, um, yeah, I'd say please send everybody to kombuchatown.com and check us out on on social media. And uh, you can also reach out to me directly as well. It's chris, C-H-R-I-S, at kombuchatown.com. So, you know, I'm always looking for feedback and engaging with people that are interested and want to try the products or have good ideas or opportunities. 
Wow. Well, you you're busy and you're thorough. <laughs> Very circumstantial. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I like so, to be busy, and I've got all this. I drink so much kombucha that I've always got like a nice little caffeine buzz, and then all the food in my stomach getting processed into energy. So. Well, yeah, I'm where a, do you buy it? Is that on your website? You can get it online. Actually, we've just been okay. selling more and more online, and actually, every time you buy a case online, we plant a tree. Uh, through the One Tree Planted Foundation, which goes to restore salmon habitat in the Pacific Northwest. Oh, wow. So that's another layer of our environmental mission. You're amazing. <laughs> hey, I'm glad I discovered you. I can't remember where I found you. but <laughs> I think it was Heather DeSantis with Publicity for Good. She's great. She she oh, right, Heather. companies, and she's really helped us get in touch. Oh, with, yeah, we've worked you know, with her on a lot of stuff, yeah. Yeah, so it's been, you know, really awesome to do that and to help share my story. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're in, the, in the middle of our 17th year of doing this. I can't believe it. That's fantastic. I saw I know. I know. We well, were really episode. early to it, yeah. That's like well, 750 guess... episodes or something, I think. More than that, <laughs> That's a lot. <laughs> All right, Chris McCoy and Kombucha Town. Thank you so Thank much you for time. talking to us. There's, there's, no, there's no question, listeners. This guy is the real McCoy. Yeah. <laughs> well, I been waiting. That. He's been holding on I've to that for an hour. Yeah. I've been, waiting. I've been waiting for that one. Kind of a late bloomer, but it's, it's, it's exciting. <laughs> so there you go. I got, I got the real McCoy in there eventually. Yeah, I, was, I, was sitting, I, was sitting on, I was sitting on that one. But, it, but it's the real McCoy and Peter... And the real McCoy and on the menu radio. We'll see you same time, same place next week. And until then, bye bye.